Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you look good today. Thanks, guys. It's a great job. That nice when someone says that to you Sunday morning at church. You look good today. So uh, that's got to be the smallest screen I've ever seen in any church <laughs> around the world. That's just amazing. To the tech guys who are able to get the words up in that little distance, I salute you. You are awesome. That is totally brilliant. I just think God is up to something amazing in these days. Um, five years ago, um, we put together um, Acts Churches UK, and uh, Bruce and I and a couple of other guys sat in a room and just dreamed about Acts Churches UK and how we could reproduce something. And we did our very first conference where I think we got about 35, 40 people. Um, and we're just dreaming and talking about what God could do in Europe. And then this year, we did our fifth year of Acts Conference. We had to move out of our church building uh, into a conference center. We had 325 leaders from 14 different nations. Isn't that amazing? And it's just really exciting what God is doing. And uh, then the week later, Bruce and I went to Bratislava, and we did another mini-Acts Conference that's in Slovakia, if you don't know. Uh, it's the capital of Slovakia. And so we were there with another 50 senior pastors. Um, and then the following week, we went to Rome, and we were with another 60 senior pastors uh, in Rome. So it's sort of three weeks on the trot, really. Um, how many of you know that if you get a senior pastor, you touch a whole lot of people? And so it's just astonishing what, is, what God is doing. And then a week later, I had the privilege of going to Switzerland, to the largest church in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, um, a church called Centre of Life that just broke 1,000 this year, which for Europe is, is pretty amazing. And so God's just up to something. And uh, Bruce and I were talking, and, and he just said, you know, five years ago when we sat and dreamed, did we think it could be this already? And so, you know, it's, it's primarily organic. It's very relational. Um, God is up to something, and we don't fully understand what he's doing. Um, and we just don't have the intelligence to put it together the way God does, I promise you. I mean, we're clever guys, but we're not that clever. Uh, but God is up to something in Europe, and um, we've taken a lot of inspiration from New Zealand and what God has done here. So I just want to thank you for that. Uh, small nations make big impacts. And so you guys are making a great, great big impact. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke 15 is a, is a really interesting chapter in the Bible, and I'm going to focus on what's primarily called the, the parable of the prodigal son um, this morning, but the focus of what I want to speak about is really about the nature of God, and what kind of God do we love, what kind of God do we serve, what kind of God do we come to? And um, let me give you a, a tiny little bit of theology here, okay? Just a little. I won't go deep into this. But when it comes to the Bible, um, I found over years that, that certain people have favorite texts or, or they go to certain texts 
And uh, there's nothing wrong with that per se. The difficulty is, is if you make a text primary when actually it's secondary. And sometimes people say to me, well, isn't the whole Bible primary? And I would say to you, no, it's not. Let me give you an example. Someone came to Jesus and they said, look, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? And so he picks out two texts, one from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus. And he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he said, quoting Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he made something really profound. He said, on these two scriptures hang all of the law and the prophets. So Jesus takes the Old Testament and he privileges two texts above everything else. And he says, if you get these two, everything else is hanging off this. How many of you know when you hang a picture on a wall, you have to put a nail in the wall or you have to put two nails in and then it hangs. The picture that you see hangs off those nails. So those texts are like the nails in the wall that the picture of redemption, the story of the Old Testament, it hangs off of that. And if you get one of those out, then the picture's a little bit skewed. And if you miss them completely, the picture's on the floor and you don't see anything clearly, just a wall. And you think the wall is the picture. And there's a lot of people do theology like that. And so I sort of want to say to you up front, all of us privileges privilege certain texts, the important thing is to privilege the right text, and the New Testament helps us to know the bits of the Old Testament that are actually primary, and then the other bits that are secondary. So let me give you another example. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you tithe mint and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like truth and justice and mercy. So he says, you're tithing, which is herbs, by the way. He says, you tithe herbs. In other words, you're great at the little detail, but you miss the big detail. You're missing the big stuff. And here's the thing, as believers, we can't miss the big stuff. Uh, We need to do the little stuff, but if you do the little stuff and miss the big stuff, then somehow we've missed it completely. Do you get that? little bit of theology there, just to kind of help you for where I'm going. So Luke 15, here's how it kicks off. Verse 1, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Don't you love it that people who are on the fringe, people whose lifestyles were, according to a religious way of looking at it, not pleasing to God, these people like to hear Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That tells me something about the kind of environment he created and the kind of attitude he communicated. So we create environments, we communicate attitudes. So church has to create the right environment and communicate the right attitude in order that sinners, tax collectors, people on the margins will want to come and listen. Do you get it? Now look at what it goes on to say. Because now we've got the religious guys. And the Pharisees and scribes complained. There's, how many of you know there's always someone in church that complains? If you're the complainer in this church, I just want to say to you, we love you. We really do. But please, stop complaining. 
you know, you know, in Jesus' name, zip it. These guys thought they were doing Jesus a favor. They complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. So everything that Jesus says in the rest of Luke 15 is a response to this criticism. You are not fellowshipping with the right people. You're not eating with the right people. There's something about your life that looks suspicious. And it's about the people you hang with. Let me just say something. If your life is so upright that nobody can cast a suspicion of you, you're just not living like Jesus. Oh, is that too harsh? You know, sometimes we get into the Pharisee zone where we make it clean on the outside, but we don't make it clean on the inside. That's primary. The outside, secondary. The outside needs to be clean, but you only get the outside clean by changing the inside. And if you just concentrate on the outside, you end up being a Pharisee. Very judgmental. Pharisees are filled with self-righteousness. They actually believe that they were better than tax collectors, better than sinners, and they had scripture to prove it. And so... Here's Jesus. He's wanting to reach out to people. He's wanting to embrace people. He's wanting to love people. But there's a whole group of people following him around who dressed nice and talked nice and looked nice and knew the Bible who were highly critical of the way he was reaching out to people. And so Jesus begins to tell a series of parables. He tells the parable to begin with of the lost sheep, and then he tells the parable of the lost coin. And then finally he tells the parable of the lost sons, because they're both lost. <clears throat> and so I want to pick up the story from the parable of the lost son. Verse 11, then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the young of them said to his father, Father, give me the portions of good that fall to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, let me say a couple of things here. I've heard a lot of preaching on this text, and I've preached on it before, about God's father heart, the father heart of God. What is God the father like? And there's nothing wrong with preaching that. I believe it does communicate that. But I would say this, in this context... The issue is Jesus spending time with people that the Pharisees thought he should not be spending time with. Now, in John chapter 14, Jesus is asked a question by Philip. Philip said to him, Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus says back to him, Philip, have I been with you so long and yet you still do not know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in John chapter 1, John puts it like this. The only begotten son who dwells in the bosom of the father, the heart of the father, he has declared him, or in the Greek, exegeted, or explained and made him fully known. So Jesus shows us, demonstrates, and is the express image of what God the Father is like. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. Do you get it? And in John chapter 14, right at the end of that chapter, he said, it's good that I'm going away because I'm going to send the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And then he makes this statement right at the end of the chapter. 
He says, I will not leave you orphans. That language makes no sense unless he's fathering the disciples. Do you get that? Yes? Fathering is not primarily about biology. It's primarily about spirit. So Jesus at the age of 30 is able to father a group of men who are not that much younger than him, maybe by 10 years. He's certainly not old enough to biologically be their father, but he has the spirit of father. He he shows what the father is like. So when we read this parable and the sons come to the father, we're usually used to thinking of our father in heaven, but I want you to think of Jesus because he's demonstrating what the heart of God is really like to all of us. This is going to get better. This is the lead up. I'm hooking you in. Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The word prodigal literally means excessive extravagance excessive and extravagant. In fact, it, one, one dictionary says recklessly extravagant. Recklessly extravagant. Um, we could do a little bit of that in the church, actually, but there we go. But when he spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Do you know how humbling that is for a Jew? Feeding pigs? You're not allowed to eat pigs if you're Jewish. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So here's here's a young man with a huge inheritance. He goes away. He blows it with reckless, extravagant living. And then having blown it all, when the money's gone, the friends are gone. We call them fair-weather friends. And suddenly he begins to be in want, and when he's in a place of need and in want, there's nobody there to meet his need, and it gets worse. It gets worse. And then it says this, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So here's this young uh, guy. You know, he's grown up in the father's house. He's, he's had position. He's had prestige. He's had money. And he, and he thinks, I'm going to go out and I'm going to make it in life now. But rather than make it in life, he wastes his inheritance. He spends in his inheritance and there's nothing left. And it's only in a place of misery, in a place of where there's nothing left, that he comes to his senses and he says, what am I doing? I'm worse off than one of the servants. I need to go back. I need to return. Now, here's the first thing I want to say about the nature of God, the God that we love, the God that we serve. The father allowed his son to pursue a misdirected dream. 
the father allowed his son to pursue a misdirected dream. You see, religion, Phariseeism, wants to control people. It's all about you can't do this and you can't do that. God's not like that. Jesus is not like that. He gives him the money, the inheritance, and says, okay, you can have it. Now, if it was you and I, if we had a pharisaical spirit, we'd say, no, I'm not going to give you the money. You're just going to waste it. You're, you're irresponsible. You need to learn responsibility. You need, you need to learn how to submit. You need to learn obedience. You need to have discipline in your life. But God is not like that. God allows us to choose a misdirected dream and allows it to play out. How many people in your world would you ever dare to let them do that? Listen, I've raised six kids. Now that I'm 60, my oldest daughter's 35, my youngest daughter's 21, I now feel like I can talk on the issue <laughs> about raising kids. I feel like I've got something to say. Uh, they all love God. Uh, five of them are, uh, are in ministry in one form or another. Two are serving in Hillsong Church. Three are serving in our church. And one's at university finding her way. I feel like I've got something to say. The greatest gift you can ever give your kids is to freedom to choose a way that they want that you know might not necessarily be the way God wants. Well, thank you for your enthusiastic response to that. I can tell you really loved hearing that statement. Because God is not a controlling God. Now, I'm not talking about 10-year-olds. I'm not talking about 15-year-olds. I'm talking when people come of age. There's times when they want to pursue, and you know in your heart it's a misdirected dream, but there's no big argument, there's no big lecture, there's no big talking down from the father to the son, because it's in his heart. And if you just say, no, you can't do that, you now become the enemy. You become the one blocking their goal. And sometimes the hardest thing to do is let go. You know, the greatest gift that God gave Adam was the freedom to make a choice. And he chose wrong, and God allowed him to pursue a misdirected dream. But he had a plan of redemption. He had a plan where, that was filled with mercy and was filled with compassion. And God is not put off by the misdirected dreams that you pursue in life. God will let you do it. Why? Because he knows it won't satisfy you. You're going to end up starving for something more real. You're going to end up hungry for something more substantial. You're going to end up in a place you say, what am I doing living like this? And my prayer is that if you know people in that place, that when they turn, we're going to respond to them like this father does. And if you're somebody who's in that place, I want to say to you, the father's house is always there and you're always welcome back. There's no such thing as a closed door in church. You know, we have people who leave church from time to time. They come to me and they have, they have all kinds of great language. The God told me language. The I feel led language. 
the I have it in my heart language. And I've just learned, you know, I've been around long enough to say, okay, well, there's no arguing with God, is there? If you feel like God spoke, I don't want to argue with him. I want to honor him. And so we just bless people. But when we bless them and let them go, I always say to them, I just want you to know there's an open door. When you leave, you're not leaving through the back door. You're leaving through the front door and it's open. And I want you to know, if you feel like you need to come back, please don't let embarrassment stop you. Don't let shame, don't let failure, don't let any of those things stop you from coming back to the Father's house. Because the door is always open. Isn't that cool? So the son goes back to the father. The father, he, 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 he lets him go to pursue a misdirected dream. Here's the second thing I love about the father. When the son returns, it's the way he responds. And it tells me something about his heart. Here's what it says. Um, it says not many... Uh, where are we? He arose and came to his father. Sorry, verse 20. He arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, let me hold it just there. Say, here's the son returning, and the father sees him from a great distance. Do you know, for the last 35 years, security at airports has focused on facial recognition. For 35 years. And we're pretty good at it now. I couldn't get into New Zealand without looking straight into a camera. And it focuses on your face, especially on your eyes. Eye retina recognition, but facial recognition is the primary means of doing security around the world today. But Stanford are doing research that's completely different. And they're researching what is it like to recognize a person half a mile away. Because if you've got a suicide bomber coming towards you, you really don't want to wait till he's close enough to recognize him to say, uh-oh, we're in trouble. So they're doing experiments with long distances. How do you recognize? And at Stanford University, they've wired up loads of people. And with this wiring, they're looking at the brain and they're looking at the eyes especially. And when a person is a great distance, we no longer make eye contact. It's just not possible. And so our eyes no longer focus on the face primarily. We look at different parts of the body. And one of the things we look at is the way a person walks. We look at their gait. We look at the way they walk, the way they move, the way their posture. And in 70% of cases now at Stanford University, they've done research, a person can be so far away, you cannot possibly recognize their face, but people are getting it right 70% of the time. So they're doing research into this to try and create electronics that can do all of this. It's really fascinating. Now, here's the point I want to make. When the sun was a great way off, the father recognized him. This tells me a couple of things. First of all, when the son left, the father did not wash his hands of him and said, right, that's over. You're no longer my son. You're no longer part of the family. You've had your inheritance. That's it. We're finished. The father saw him a great way off, 
Because he was looking with anticipation. You see, I believe the second thing, the second quality about the God that we love and the God that we serve is not only does he give us the freedom to choose a misdirected goal or vision or dream, but he does so living in hope of our return. In the Bible, he's called the God of all hope. The God of all hope. Now, Paul says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with hope in believing, fill you with joy in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying the Holy Spirit wants to fill you with a sense that there is a future. Something good is going to happen. And here's this father, you know, the son is leaving and he doesn't know where he's going. He knows it's not going to be good and he knows it won't end well, but he's living in hope. How many of you have given up on people? A friend or relative? You pray for them for 20 years and they haven't got saved yet. I want to say to you, don't give up. I want to say to you, believe God that they will come through. My father was one of the most stubborn men you could ever meet. He was one of the most cynical men you could ever meet. My father worked for the Metropolitan Police. He was one of the founders of what today is called the Vice Squad. So most of his life was spent working with pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers. That was his life. 25 years of doing that. So he was really cynical about people. Uh, My father had a radar. He could spot a liar at 100 meters. I would bring friends around who would boast about doing things. And my dad would say, he's a liar. He's a liar. He's a, yeah, he's lying about that. I would say, how did you do that? <laughs> you know, it's like the sloth on Ice Age. You know, I don't like this guy. He reads mine. <laughs> you know that? <laughs> my dad was like that. So when my brother and I, when he said to us, you know, did you do this? It was like no chance of getting away with a lie. What's it like living with someone like that? Impossible. (laughs) But later on in life, my father became really tender and really soft. And the age of 84, he came to Jesus. It took 25 years of talking, arguing, loving embracing, and he eventually came to Jesus. Just don't give up on people. He's called the God of hope. He's called the God of hope. So the son goes back, and he's, he's, got, this, he's got this speech he's going to rehearse. I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son because of what I've done. Make me like one of your hired servants. And when the father sees his son... The first thing the Bible says is he's filled with compassion. He's not filled with anger. (laughs) He's not filled with judgment. You see, that's what's happening with the Pharisees and the scribes. They're looking at these tax collectors and their sinners, and they're angry with them. But God is not angry with sinners. He is filled with compassion towards their brokenness. And he's filled with compassion towards your brokenness this morning. God understands your weakness. It says in the psalm, he knows our frame and he remembers we are but dust. God knows that about you. And so having had compassion on his son, 
he, he runs up to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. Here's the third thing about the God that we love and that we serve. God is all ready to embrace you and to kiss you and to love you and receive you to himself. You know, I've discovered something. It says in Romans chapter uh, 15 and verse 7, it says this. Receive one another the way Christ has received us to the glory of God. Here's what I've discovered. You cannot receive someone if you cannot forgive them. You cannot do it. If you can't forgive a person, you can't receive a person. Have you ever tried embracing somebody you can't forgive? Just try that one, see how it goes. Yeah. Just doesn't work. But the father is fully forgiving the son and he embraces him and he kisses him on the neck. And, and the son has got the speech prepared. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And what I love about it is he never gets to finish it. God's not interested in your plan of redemption. God's not interested in what you want to do for him to make it right because he's done everything to make you right. It's called grace. It's called forgiveness. It's God's love. None of us deserve it because we can't earn it. It is a free gift from heaven to you in your brokenness. Now, friends, I'm preaching much better than the third row and back are responding. This should excite you. This is the God that we love and we serve. You see, I, I don't want to come to a God who's like a Pharisee. Oh, okay, oh, you, you, you come to say sorry, are you? Okay, what are you sorry for? Let me hear you say it. How does that make you feel? You know, God doesn't humiliate you. The son returning was enough. And as soon as the son tries to speak, the, the father speaks. And I, I love what he says here. He, he just comes uh, and he, he breaks in and he says, he says, the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. <laughs> he didn't say, listen, get him some clothes. He said, go find the best. <laughs> Don't you love it? That your father, in your place of weakness, in your place of despair, in your place of brokenness, in your place of shame, in your place of sin, he gives you his best. Because you don't deserve the best, nor do I, but because of his love through Jesus, he gives you the best. A robe of righteousness. That's what it speaks of. Clean, perfect spotless before him. And you see Jesus, when he's with these prostitutes and these tax collectors and these sinners, he's not seeing them in their sin, he's seeing them in their potential. And because he's seeing their potential, they want to be around Jesus. And when they hang around Jesus long enough, they want to be different. They say, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to be like that man. He speaks truth and he speaks hope and he speaks life. And that's what I need. <laughs> Bring out the best robe. This is crazy stuff. 
And then it doesn't stop there. It says, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You know, the ring in the Bible always speaks of authority. King's ring was sealed on documents. But God said to Zechariah, I'm going to set you as a signet ring on my hand. It's a place of authority. It's a place of honor. And he says, put sandals on his feet. He's going to have a new walk now. <laughs> he's not going to be in the dust of the earth. But he's going to have sandals to protect him. Good shoes. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the shoes of the gospel of peace. And he says, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. <laughs> bring the fatted, you know, the fatted calf was kept for religious festivals. They, they kept it all year. When they say the fatted calf, I mean they fed it, fed it well, so it got really fat. You know, you just had a great big fat cow because you knew the steak of that cow was going to be awesome when it came to festival time. And the father says, go get that baby. We're going to have a party today. Kill the fatted calf. I remember when my daughter, she graduated from Chester University. She just wrote me a little text. And she said, dear dad, I finally finished my degree. It's all over. I'm coming home. Kill the fatted calf. <laughs> the generosity is outrageous. You see, the story is not really about the prodigal son. It's about the prodigal God. He is recklessly extravagant with his grace and his forgiveness. Reckless. Well, you, you should at least earn that. You, you should at least let him finish his speech. You should at least put him on probation. You should at least make him like one of the hired servants so we really know he's genuine. And God is just reckless with his mercy and his grace. He's extravagant. This is the God that we love. This is the God that we serve. This is the message of hope that we bring to people who don't yet know Jesus. This is the Jesus that we want people to know. <laughs> and then it says this. He makes a declaration. Kill the fatty calf. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Here's the fourth thing about the God that we serve. He loves celebration. He loves celebration. Every time there's a homecoming. He celebrates. In this set of parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and now the parable of the lost sons, there is a celebration. Jesus said in the first two parables, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't need repentance. Did you get that? More joy in heaven. Every time somebody commits their life to Christ in this church, I hope you have a breakdown party in your heart. I hope when Pastor Willie says, come on, let's just, let's just celebrate, let's just sing this song. I hope you're not just passive there. And, oh, yeah, only, only three got saved this week. Yeah. Ten got saved down the road. We only had three. Well, Helen celebrates with one. Here's what I've discovered as a pastor. Whatever you celebrate, God will give you more of. 
Hello? Whatever you celebrate, God will give you more of it. I know a lot of people who celebrate the wrong stuff. You can tell what they celebrate because that's what they talk about. Oh, the weather's awful, isn't it? Let's celebrate the awful weather. Prices are just going up. The mortgage is going up. I'm in debt. Let's celebrate debt. Let's talk about debt. Let's talk about healing. Let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about a God who in Lamentations 3 is a God who's always there filled with hope. And it's because of the Lord's mercies we're not consumed. Let me give you a tiny bit more theology just about Lamentations. You're going to love this. Lamentations is written chiistically. It's Hebrew word for a chiistic structure. So in English and in Greek thinking, we're used to thinking linearly. So it becomes this, one, two, three, four, five. The punchline is at five. One, two, three, four is the build-up to the punchline. So Agatha Christie writes a novel, and there's a murder that takes place. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, the, the killer is revealed at the end. Hebrew thinking is not like that. Hebrew thinking is not linear. It is cyclical. So in Hebrew thinking, the punchline is never at the end. It's always in the middle. So you have one, two, three, two, one. And the one there corresponds to the one here. So in the book of Lamentations, the first chapter is all about the sin of Israel. The last chapter is about the judgment of Israel for the sin of Israel. The second chapter is all about God reaching out to Israel, warning her. And then the fourth chapter is all about Israel ignoring the warning. The punchline comes in the middle. Lamentations 3.21. It's because of the Lord's mercies. We are not consumed. It is the heart. It is the center. It is the message of Jeremiah. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy. Because that's what his heart is like. Oh, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff out there on the internet today about God's judging the earth and God's judging America. And God's judging Europe. Well, okay, yeah, I know there's judgments. But God's heart is reluctant to do that. His desire is to bless. His desire is to heal. His desire is to save. His desire is to clothe you with a robe of righteousness. Put a ring of authority on your finger. Put sandals on your feet. His desire is to celebrate and have a party. Come on. No wonder that song went to the Christian number one chart, Beating Hill Song. You know when you beat a Hill Song song, you've done something good. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they are just superb, that group. So you know when you top the charts, you've done something great. That came out of this house. Wow, you're excited about that, aren't you? That should excite us. That should make us say, wow. Wow. Hillsong are 35,000 in Australia. And we're just a few thousand here in New Zealand. But God is allowing a sound to come out. And the reason God is promoting that sound is because it reflects his heart. 
and he loves it. And he's connecting with a generation who say, yes, we want to come to a God who lets us party, who lets us celebrate redemption, who lets us enjoy his presence. David wrote in Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. He had a smile on his face when he wrote that psalm. He wasn't baptized in vinegar, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Not bad for a guy with jet lag, eh? They began to be merry. Now it gets interesting. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come. And because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Now we're getting to the real heart of the story. Because... In chapter 15 of verse 1, 2, and 3, it's the Pharisees who don't want to eat with Jesus when he's eating with these people. They don't want to go in. They don't, what are you celebrating for? These are wicked people. These these are people who've broken your laws. They've broken your commandments. They've, They've wasted the inheritance. Why would we want to eat with them? And the older brother excludes himself. <laughs> he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might marry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, notice that, as soon, he didn't say as soon as my brother. There's a little bit of distance there, isn't there? This son of yours. As soon as he came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you kill the fatty calf for him. You know what's so interesting? Is I've noticed some people leave the church in order to pursue their misdirected dream, but some people stay in the house and have a misdirected vision of what God is really like. They never leave, but they're not happy. They're not joyful. They're angry. And any sign of generosity and mercy to someone they don't think who deserves it, they get even more angry. Here's what the father says. He said to him, son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. You see, you can focus on the sin and privilege that, or you can focus on the heart that has turned and privilege that. What do you think God does? You know what I love about this story? Is we don't know what he does. Does he go in? And have a change of heart? Or does he stay outside and say, stuff that? I'm not going to be part of any of that. Because the decision is with the people listening to the story. 
so what will you do? If you're a son who's left the house, will you come back? Will you come back to a God who's ready to kiss you on the neck, clothe you with his righteousness, receive you to himself with joy, not talk about your failure, not point the finger at your sin, but give you a brand new beginning? If you've left and you've done that, would would you come back to a God like that? And, And if you're in a church where people like that come, are you willing to be like Jesus who reflects what the Father's really like? Are you prepared to embrace them? Are you prepared to love them? Are you prepared to forgive them? You know, in pastoral ministry, over 40 years, I've dealt with so much mess in people's lives. I mean mess. Girls who've had multiple abortions. People who've been divorced and broken. People who are just struggling with gender issues and same-sex attraction. People who are just feel like they've gone one step too far. And the Jesus I know and the God that I serve says there is no sin so big he can't forgive it. There is no sin so great that the cross doesn't bridge that divide. And if you've been out there and you're hungry and your belly's empty and you know that there's a whole group of people somewhere and life is better, I want to say to you today, come home. Come home. And to you who are here already in the house, I want to say, don't be like the Pharisees. When they come home, celebrate. Take them out for a meal. Welcome them. Embrace them. Tell them that you still believe in them. You know, when I was a young man at 18, I went away to university. I was so disillusioned with Christianity and with life. I made three promises to myself. I'll never read the Bible again. I'll never pray again. And I'll never meet with Christians. I will avoid those things, those three things diligently. Diligently. And I committed to that for three years. And everywhere I went, I kept bumping into Christians. It's like you can never meet a Christian till you don't want to meet one. And then they end up everywhere. And, and the, here was the horrible thing. I used to get to know people and like them and then find out they were a Christian. It's like, oh, shit. I already like you. And then one day, a friend rang me up. Her name was Gwenda Bennett. She's just come back from America and she had an encounter with God. She rang me and she told me over the phone, she said, Peter, I've just had this encounter with God. I would love to just meet with you. And she laughs at me today. She reminds me of this. And I said to her, Gwenda, you wouldn't want to meet with me now. I'm one of those sinners. And she started laughing on the phone. She said, that's just the kind of person I want to spend time with. So she offered me sort of an afternoon tea and I thought, free meal, okay. I went and had afternoon tea with her. And then afterwards, she was a bit sneaky. They had a Bible study. I was trapped. (laughs) And then all these weird Christians started coming in, just 
high. Praise God. You know, they'd, they'd had this encounter with Jesus and they couldn't stop saying, praise God. And it's like, okay. And then a guy came along to lead the Bible study and he was from Texas. Now you need to know what an amazing miracle this is for me because my father hated Americans. So I, I grew up with a very prejudiced father. He said there's only three things wrong with America because of the war and, you know, America coming late in the war. A lot of Brits resented that for years, my father's generation. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, the three things wrong with Americans in Britain is they're overpaid, they're oversexed, and they're over here. <laughs> that was the attitude, my father's generation. So, so just really hated Americans. So I kind of, you know, you're the product of your parents' prejudices. So I picked up that prejudice and I thought, and here's this guy. He said, open your Bibles. We're going to look at the Word of God. And I thought, oh, she's an American. So everything in me did not want to be in that meeting, did not want to be in that place. I didn't like the guy who was speaking. I didn't like the fact I was tricked. I didn't like being in a room with people who were so enthusiastic about Jesus when I knew I wasn't. And in that room, this guy spoke. And God touched my heart unbelievably. And I was shaken to the core. I felt like God was speaking just to me in that room. And I remember walking out and I prayed for the first time in three years. And I said, God, if that's you, you've got my attention, but you need to do it again. That was my first prayer. I went back a week later, the same crazy group. I sat there and it happened exactly again. God spoke to my heart so radically. And I went out into my car and I sat in my little Mini Cooper car and I put my hands on the steering wheel and I said, God, I'm fed up making promises to you that I can't keep. And here's my prayer. I said, if you can do anything with this life, it's yours to do it, but you're going to have to do it. Because my life has just been one big failure after another. So I just need you to do it. And in that moment, my car got filled with the Holy Spirit and the presence of God came in that car and I'd never experienced anything like it. And as the presence of God came upon me, I started to laugh. I want you to know this was 10 years before Toronto. I started to laugh uncontrollably. I was all on my own. The Holy Spirit was touching me. And I was laughing and I was crying. And the presence of God was so real. I drove half an hour home. I couldn't wipe the smile off my face for a week. How many of you know going on the tube smiling looks weird? I mean, you're this close to people and I was like this. People were saying to me, do I know you? I said, no, I don't think so. Why are you smiling? I'm happy. <laughs> that was embarrassing. Couldn't wipe the smile for a week. My mother wrote in her diary. After she died, I read her diary. She said, my, my son has come home today completely changed. I do not know what has happened to him. Friends, God wants to touch lives. The God that we love receives people to himself. Let's be a church that does the same. I'm just going to pray for you now. If you wouldn't mind just bowing your heads and closing your eyes. Perhaps you're here this morning 
and you can identify more with the younger brother 